An advertisement that, that I was reading about said this, Now you too can own a genuine coin from the time of Jesus. The widow's might. It's a minor miracle that this coin has survived, and now people of faith can study, cherish, and protect it for future generations. It's yet another miracle that they're so affordable. (laughs) The ad went on to share the Scripture we're going to be studying this morning. And then it said, While our limited supplies last, you may order the 2,000-year-old widow's mite for only $39.95 plus shipping and handling. Remember, this is the genuine coin mentioned in the Holy Bible. Maybe limited supplies means two. Since to be genuine... (laughs) Never mind. Okay, we'll, we'll get there. It makes a perfect gift for your child, grandchild, or favorite clergyman. I am not asking for a gift of a widow's mite. <laughs> what's wrong with this picture? This morning we're going to talk about what's wrong with that picture as we study the passage and the passage right before it that Jesus intentionally is using as a comparison. But it's interesting in a world where evangelism and especially televangelists are associated with money. Asking for money. And so many times we've seen the abuse of position and we've seen the abuse of, of being a pastor or being on TV or, or preaching for personal gain. And this morning as we look at the text, we're going to see Jesus compare those that are abusing for personal gain and those that have a different take on money. Those that see money in a completely different way. And we'll look at a comparison between the scribes and the widow. The elite of society and the downtrodden of society. And we'll see what Jesus has to say about it. See, I'm convinced that Satan is attacking his church and attacking every one of us, especially in America. And I speak, I speak to the church in America, but especially attacking us by convincing us That if we give just a little, we've given enough. That if we give just a portion, that we've pleased God, that we've fulfilled our duty, and we're looking at not just money, but time and ourselves all wrong. Because if Satan can convince us that just a little bit of ourself is enough for God, then he can keep a lot of ourselves for himself. And so we come to the text this morning saying, how can we learn to give all? How can we learn to do what Jesus said just a few verses back that we studied last week? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind. I'd like to start with a word of prayer this morning. Lord God, as we come to your word, challenge us. Challenge us on difficult topics of pride and money. Topics we don't like to talk about, but you do. And so, Lord, I pray that your words will ring true in our hearts. That your words will challenge us, will convict us, and will teach us. In Jesus' name, amen. Turn with me to Mark chapter 12. Mark chapter 12. 
Last week we started going through a series of questions and studying through a series of questions starting at verse 13 that people, various people kept coming up to Jesus and asking Him. He's in the temple probably on Tuesday, the week that He is about to be crucified, three days away. And He's in the temple teaching and people are, are trying to confront Him and trying to trap Him. And for the religious leaders, if they can trap Him in their minds, they can then arrest Him and punish Him and stop the work that Jesus is doing. Pretty ironic since the plan of God was for them to arrest Him, crucify Him, and that He would be rise again on the third day to pay the price for our sins. Much bigger picture. But they think they're trying to derail Him. And in verse last week we looked at verses 13 through 17 and a question came in about politics. Do we pay taxes? And Jesus brings it back to a walk with God. And He says, yes, render to Caesar's what is Caesar, but render to God what is God's because His image is imprinted on our souls. And we are His. And we are to give our all to Him. Next question comes in, and if you remember, it's about the, the wife who went through seven husbands. In our community group this week, the joke was, hey, I wouldn't want to be the eighth. But she, she went through seven husbands because they kept dying. And the question was, okay, in heaven, whose husband will she, or whose wife will she be? And it was a theological question, and they're trying to trap Jesus and trying to show how his theology was wrong. And he not only answers that question, but then he brings it back to a walk with God again, that God is the God of the living. And, and he's using covenant language there, that he keeps his promises. He is faithful to the living, even after time here on earth is done, we spend eternity with Him if we know Him. Then the next question comes in about the law and how do I obey the law just right? And it's a question of legalism. We talked about that we need to stay focused on His kingdom by not reducing Christian obedience to cold obedience. But by seeing, as Jesus said, He brings it back to love God with your whole being and love others. And we know from Matthew that he says all of the law and the prophets hang on these two commands. Then we get to verses 35 through 37, and we didn't talk about them last week, so I want to start there this week as a lead in to our text for the morning. Verse 35, and as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, now, now keep in mind, up until now, everyone's asking him questions. They now are sort of stuck because he's answered everything and they don't know what to say. And so he says, okay, I've got one for you. And, and, and as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. So how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. And so Jesus here poses a riddle to them. He, he, he talks to them out of one of their favorite psalms. In fact, the psalms that is most quoted in the New Testament. And He's showing them a problem with their expectations. And the fourth point from last week, the things that get in the way of seeing the kingdom, get in the way of seeing what God is doing is our expectations. Our expectations. Stay focused on the kingdom by realizing that your expectations may have nothing to do with God's plan. That your expectations may have nothing to do with God's plan. And, and we, we need to understand what's going on in these verses and, and the history of what's happening because 
the religious leaders, they were expecting a, a Davidic king, a son or a descendant of David to come and to liberate them from Rome, to, to bring peace, to destroy their enemies. And that was the nature of their expectations of what the Messiah would be, an earthly descendant of David. And in this culture, they had, they had a very strict sense of honor among descendants. A father was always greater than his son. Okay, I would never go to Mark or Jeffrey and say, oh my Lord. Oh, now they would like that, but I would never do that. Even in all our culture, that's inappropriate. In this culture, it was far more inappropriate because a father was greater than the son. And so as they were expecting a king in the line of David, they were expecting an earthly human deliverer. That was their expectations. That's what their hope was based on. That's what their evaluation of Jesus was based on. And so you can see why with that set of expectations, their conclusion was God isn't here. God is not working. And we do the same thing, don't we? We come into expectations of how God should work, of what we want God to do. And when God doesn't work quite like how we want Him to work, we come to a crisis of belief. And, and before we start saying, well, okay, yeah, other people have that problem, I would bet every one of us comes to this at a regular basis where I expect God to do certain things and He doesn't seem to do what I expect. And what we're going to see in these, these verses, Jesus is saying, the problem isn't with what I'm doing. I am working my plan. I am working my plan perfectly. The problem is with our expectations. And so as hard as it is, Jesus is, is calling them and calling us to leave our expectations at the altar of the King. And to say, my expectations for how you should work, God, are nothing compared to your plan. Let me explain how Jesus is showing this. He said, how can the scribes say that Christ is the son of David, the Christ or the Messiah? And it's, it's basically the question of what do they mean? What do they mean by the son of David? You guys think it's an earthly kingdom, but what do they mean? And in verse 36, Jesus goes back to Scripture, to Psalm 110, verse 1. David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, which incidentally a great reference to the inspiration of Scripture and how that works, but he declared, the Lord said to my Lord. And in English, we don't get the sense of the different words. And in Greek, actually, there is no difference. But in the Hebrew that he's quoting, it is very clear what God is saying here, what David is saying here. The first, the Lord, is the word Yahweh. And it refers to God Almighty, the creator of the universe. And he's saying, Yahweh said to my Lord, and the second word he uses is Adonai, which is an earthly word for someone that has authority over us. Someone that is, is above us in status or stature. And so David himself, in a psalm that they, they viewed as one referring to the Messiah, says, God Almighty says to my Lord, which will be the Messiah, sit at my right hand and I will put your enemies under your feet. To sit at the right hand of God is to sit in the highest place of honor. A, a king on his right would have the person that could act in the king's stead, that could act with all of the authority of the king. 
And so this is a statement of, of divinity, of God saying that Jesus is with me. He is divine. He goes on to say, until I put your enemies under your feet. A message that God would eventually destroy the enemies of His kingdom, not the enemies that are here on earth of Israel. And so Jesus brings this up and then He ends by saying, okay, David calls Him Lord. He calls the Messiah Adonai. So how's He His Son? We don't do that. And, and what He's attacking here is their expectations and their assumptions about Jesus. And in this, these short two verses, He says, Jesus is, is man. He's, a, he's the descendant of David. He's fully man, but He's fully God. He is divine. And we see that by, by David's own words. And their expectation is Jesus is only an earthly king. God's plan is that Jesus would come and attack the domain of Satan himself and attack the stranglehold of sin on our lives and pay for it on the cross in our place. That if we would come and believe on him, that that price would be paid. Which is better? Romans not bothering you or not spending eternity in hell. And see, God's plan was so much greater and so incredible because it, it restored His kingdom in the heart for all eternity, not just for a year that they were looking at here on earth. And so it was a, a confrontation of expectations of bringing their expectations back to what is God doing instead of what I, what I desperately want. What is good for His kingdom and His glory, which is good for all that believe, instead of what do I think I need now? Wow. Wow. And in one question, Jesus drives that home. Drives that home says the crowd loved it. So we move on to our text today. Because now that the questions are done and Jesus ends His question and He's confronted those things that they keep trying to get in the way of the kingdom, letting get in the way of the kingdom, He now will summarize so much of this discussion, so much of the day's debates and actually the, the month's debates leading up to this by talking about, okay, what kind of heart does God really want? We've had all these questions about all these superfluous things. What does God really want? What does He really desire? And He uses two illustrations to do that. The first in 38 through 40, He's going to talk about the scribes and say, watch out for the self-serving attitudes that creep in. And then in verses 41 to 44, He's going to turn and focus on a widow, a contrast to those scribes, and say that God is thrilled when we stop holding back and start offering all. So let's look at that contrast. Before we read verse 38, I'd like to go back two chapters. Go back to Mark chapter 10, verse 43. But it shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. 
And flip back over to chapter 12, verse 38. And in his teaching, he said, Beware of the scribes who walk, who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. And Jesus, in the first part of his contrast, he, he comes at the scribes and, and, and he addresses the heart, a heart that was not the heart of a servant leader, a heart that was not representative in the verses in Mark chapter 10 that we read. In fact, they were diametrically opposed, the complete opposite. Because the Pharisees were looking to grasp everything they could for self. To hold tightly, to cling to everything they could for self. They were a self-serving bunch. And so Jesus here is warning, watch out for self-serving attitudes. Watch out for those attitudes and leaders in yourself. They creep in. They creep in. He begins in verse 38 by saying, beware of the scribes. And the word for beware is to watch intensely. To be, be very careful in how we watch and, and are aware of what's going around us. I think of, of in Iraq and in Afghanistan, some of our, our men and women that are fighting on our behalf there. One of the things they have to watch out for is IEDs, improvised explosive devices. Roadside bombs is how I remember it. And, and what happens is, is people that are, the, the rebels there are people trying to, to kill our men and women will somehow improvise a normal looking object into a bomb. And they'll put it on the side of the road or in the middle of the road, and as a convoy goes by, it explodes and kills our, our servicemen and women. And so what they do is they train them, in, in right from boot camp on, they train them of how to spot these things. And they have someone, or multiple people, that their job is as they're driving in the convoy, they are to look for signs of one of these IEDs. Now, how carefully do you think they're watching? Very carefully. Why? Because their lives depend on it. That's the picture that Jesus is using when He says, beware of the scribes. This isn't just a casual, oh no. This is, be very, very intent. Careful. Search out self-serving tendencies. Search out those things in our lives that are feeding self. And he goes on to describe the scribes. And three root issues that he talks about. First one we see in verses, the rest of 38 and 39. Who like to walk around in long robes. And the first issue is that of pride. Self above God. It violates the first commandment that Jesus said, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And we see that, that these men are directly disobeying that command by putting themselves above God. Like to walk around in long robes. See, the scribes of the time would wear clothes that were different from everyone else. They would wear these, these robes that would go all the way to the ground. They would wear white. And for us, white seems like, oh, that's just a neutral color. For them, white was a sign of, of, of purity. It was a sign of distinction. 
And the common people, in fact, the, the phrase was, let the common people wear colors. And so the common people would wear colors. The really righteous people, the elite, would wear these white long robes because they reminded people of the priest's robes. And it was taking a position for themselves, taking honor for themselves. Jesus goes on to say, and they like greetings in the marketplaces. Now we might think, well, greetings aren't bad. You know, it was nice to have some people say hi to me when I came in this morning. Imagine if you came in and no one ever talked to you. And, and I, I pray we're not a church body that is like that, but we're greeting each other and welcoming each, each other. But again, we have to understand what's going on because there was this expectation that when a scribe walked down the street, everyone was to greet them because of their position, because they are an honored member of society more than myself, and to greet them, you had to stand up. Stop whatever you're doing, stand up and face them and greet them by either rabbi or father or master or teacher. Then they'd pass by, you could sit down again. Go back to doing whatever you're doing. In fact, they were honored above the elderly and the parents, which were both instructed by God and were both values that were held dearly. And so you get the picture of these men that were wearing things that reminded people of their position, that let people know that they were important, who walked through the streets and accepted all this praise and adoration. Jesus goes on, and and they have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at the feasts. Again, the synagogue, there were up by where the law was, there was a chest with the Torah in it and the law, and there were some seats up there, and those seats were the places of honor. That's where the scribes would sit. Because remember, a scribe was like a lawyer of the law. They were the ones that had studied the law more than anyone else. And so they'd sit up next to the law, and it was the, the one place in the whole synagogue where you could be sure everyone got to see you. Okay? You getting a picture here? The feast that Jesus mentioned. The, one of the things that had happened in the culture, again, the scribes were an elevated um, class of person, and there became this sense that if I could get an important person at my feast, then it's a really good feast. I get, I get pleasure from that. You know, we're having Super Bowl parties next week, or gatherings in our, in our homes, and several people are having homes, which, um, <laughs> My son was back there and he read the worship folder. He goes, yes, there's one at our house. And I'm so glad my wife didn't read it and say, oh, there's one at our house. But, um, <laughs> but imagine if we rated the success of those gatherings by who attended, by the importance of who attended. Well, I had four elders at mine. I'm more important than you. That's what was happening. And, and the, then what would happen is the scribes would come and there was an order to where you sat and the closest to the host, the closer you sat to the host, the more important you were. And so they would leave those seats for the scribes and the scribes would take them. And they would feel good about it. And so Jesus here is saying, beware of an attitude that will take these tokens of self-satisfaction, that will take approval from people and and desperately need it that will even dress in a way to generate it and make sure it happens. All of these things were pointing to self. None of them were pointing back to God. 
So you see the scribes were grasping everything for themselves. And pride ruled the day. Pride that says, I am worth more than I am. I deserve the attention. Give it to me. Researchers sometimes ask husbands and wives what percentage of housework they do. The wives will almost always answer, are you kidding? I do almost everything, at least 90%. The husbands will usually say, I do a lot, about 40%. See a problem? We're doing 130% of the housework now. And across the board in this study, they found that the numbers might have changed slightly from couple to couple, but they always exceeded 100% by a large margin. Why? Because we overestimate our contribution. We overestimate ourselves. We like to look good. We like to think highly of ourselves. And that's what is happening here. It feels good to be recognized. It feels good to say you're doing a good job. But when that becomes our motivation in life, we now are losing sight of the heart that God wants. Verse 40. Jesus goes on, and the next thing He attacks is the love of money. The love of money or greed. With a simple phrase, who devour widows' houses. Who devour widows' houses. There's a lot of theories of what this means. But what we do know is the scribes were somehow using widows and using their resources to a point that those widows were losing their homes, losing everything they had. Now, now probably the, the scribes by, by law were not allowed to take payment for their teaching. And so to survive, they lived on what people gave them. And there's evidence that, that shows that the scribes would start to use that and misuse that rather. And they'd come and say, well, you know, I need to be supported. You need to support me in this way. And, and they, would, they would take money by obligation from people. And especially the widows who, who were a little more generous and who were trying to, to help out, they would ask them for help and guilt them for help. They would sponge hospitality off people, usually people of limited means. The other side of it, too, is they were lawyers, and part of their duties was often to take care of husbands' estates. And if you took care of it just right, you could get the house for yourself. Horrible, isn't it? Because they loved money more than others. They loved money more than God. And they're violating the, the second command that Jesus mentioned last week, love others, love your neighbor as yourself. And they're abusing their position. They're using their position to get something from someone that they, that, that person will then feel obligated to give. And, and there's a lesson here. One of our 15 principles of servant leadership was unentitled. And it, and it comes from verses like this, where we are not to use our position in leadership, whether it be a pastor, an elder, a teacher, a leader of a ministry, we're not to use our position in leadership for personal gain or to expect people to do us favors, to expect that people, well, because, you know, I'm the pastor, someone should do this for me. Because by virtue of position we often can convince people. 
I remember growing up, my dad, I'd have these candy sales at school, and there's always contests, and I was a fairly competitive young man, and, and I'd be like, Dad, you're the boss. You take this to work. I, I wouldn't say, I'd say, please take this to work. <laughs> uh, there's no way I'd say it the other way. <laughs> um, and Dad would always say, no, I'm not going to do that. I'd be like, why not? All my friends, their fathers are taking it to work and selling. He's like, because I'm the manager there. And people will feel obligated to buy it. And I will not put them in that position. That can't be said of the scribes. That can't be said of the scribes. See, the burden is on the teacher. The burden is on the person that, that has the position to not ask. The burden wasn't on the widows to say no. So the scribes were again feeding self and self-centered because they were taking from the widows. Finally, the last part of verse 40. Who devour widows and for a pretense, for a front, make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. Or as some versions say, severe punishment. It's a reminder back to James chapter 3, verse 1, where he says, let not many of you become teachers because you will incur a stricter judgment. And we see the third one is hypocrisy. The three issues were pride, love of money or greed, and hypocrisy. So they give these long prayers, maybe even right after taking some widows home and leaving her on the street. And then, you know, we've, we've got to assuage our guilt, so I'm going to go to the temple and I'm going to do this long prayer to remind myself of how spiritual I am. But their actions didn't match their heart. The prayer didn't match the evil, self-centered heart that they had. The heart didn't match the prayer. And they were just covering up their greed and covetousness while they were disobeying that God's command to take care of widows. Exodus 22, verse 22 says, You shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry. This first passage is a call for genuineness. A call to to stay away and to watch out for anything that becomes self-serving. To be diligent in that. I think it's interesting that he's calling them to be careful of leaders that are like that. And I urge you to evaluate leaders that we respect, people that we put on pedestals, people you listen to. I urge you to evaluate the leaders of this church, myself and the elders and Pastor Andrew and any of the teachers. And, and if there are areas of self-centeredness and self, self-serving, we need to eliminate them. And so, with anyone that you look up to, be careful of that. Don't follow that. Because when we follow that, when we idolize a leader, when we look up to them, we become like them. We need to stand against it. We need to stand against it in ourselves. Issues of self-serving do not give up easily. They don't reveal themselves easily in ourselves. And so this week, I urge you to pray and say, God, if there's anything that's self-serving in me, reveal it to me. 
reveal it to me. My work, my attitudes, in my driving, in my parenting, in my conflict with others in the body. Reveal it to me. But Jesus doesn't stop with the warning. Rather, he gives us another example. Verses 41 to 44. We saw watch out for self-serving attitudes that creep in. But then we see God is thrilled when we stop holding back and start offering all. See, the scribes were grasping for everything they could. The widow was giving everything she could. Complete contrast. Complete different situation. So read with me 41 to 44. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums. And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who, cont- who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance But she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. What a difference from the scribes. What a joy. And so we see in verse 41, Jesus is is intentional and He comes to the treasury. He sits down to watch. He is intentional about giving them another example. The, the, the place where he's watching is probably in the court of women in the temple, and that doesn't mean only women could go there, but it's the last place that women could go. And, and so men and women are there, and they had 13 different shafar or trumpet-shaped receptacles that people would give in. And these receptacles were for all kinds of things, maybe a sin offering one and, and a grain offering one. And there were, there were seven of them that were specific to specific offerings, and then there were, were six of them that were free will offerings that were just for the functioning of the temple. That's where Jesus is sitting, people watching, waiting. And we'll find that he's not looking for how much people are putting in. He's looking for the heart that they're putting it in with. What's interesting to me is that he's sitting and watching it. When we start to talk about money, maybe you're starting to shift in your seat already. Oh no, here we go. Jesus sat and watched what people gave. It's a reminder to us that God is very interested in our giving. God is interested in our giving. Why? Not because He's short on money. Why? Because it reveals our heart. Like nothing else, money reveals our priorities, it reveals our values, it reveals our heart. Just try borrowing money from family. See what happens. But God is interested in it because He's interested in our hearts. Hearts that are sold out for Him. And so people are coming and giving and and these were, were... brass containers or um, metal containers. And so if you threw your money in just right, and you can make a good noise. You could make, you could make sure everybody knew what you were giving. Pretty nice, right? Well, for them, for the scribes. And in that setting, Jesus is sitting there and people are giving large sums of money. And Jesus isn't, isn't saying they shouldn't be doing that, but he spies One little woman who by her dress as a widow has nothing destitute. When you're a widow and if you didn't have any sons, you had no one to support you. 
And she comes, probably walking slowly, and she pulls out two small copper coins, or lepta, the smallest currency that they had. And those two coins together, there's lots of debate how much are they worth. They're worth about a half a penny today of our coins. And she drops them in one of the free will offering containers. It wasn't enough to, to, to purchase anything in any of the others, so probably a free will offering. An act of worship. An act of devotion. And Jesus watches that. He says, there, that's what I'm looking for. That's it. And you see in verse, in verse 40, 43, he called his disciples to him and he said to them, truly I say to you, this is important. And so he, you can see him getting excited and he calls everyone around his disciples and said, okay, now I have something to tell you. This is important. And he goes on to commend this lady. To commend this widow for how she gave. And there's things we can learn from this of how to give and how we're to give. I'd like to just go through four of them in the time we have left. The first thing that he commends is a heart of complete devotion. Jesus commends a heart of complete devotion. See, she loved God with all her heart, soul, mind, and strength. She loved God with all that she had. And that wholehearted devotion was of greater worth than any quantity of money could give. Those two little coins represented a heart of worship and a heart completely sold out to God. 1 Samuel 16.7 The Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And God looked at her gift and He took delight and He took pleasure in it. Because the heart measures the value of the gift, not the amount. The heart measures the value of the gift, not the amount. And Jesus is talking money here, but we can expand this to our, our, our whole selves. How do I give my time? How do I give my money, my resources, my heart to God? And this humble woman gave an amount that would have been ridiculed by the others that were giving. And Jesus says, don't ridicule her. She gave more than any of them because her heart was devoted to me. A couple of applications out of that. The first is, in our giving, when we give money to God, when we give money to His work, when we give our time, God wants it to come from a heart that loves Him completely and wholly. Because where our treasure is, our heart will be also. And if our heart is devoted to God and sold out to God, if we burn with a passion to see people come to Christ, how could we not give to missions? If we burn with a passion to see our community, to see people discipled for Christ, how can we not then give to His work? And Jesus commends her for a heart of complete devotion. The other application out of this is it's so easy to think, you know what, the, the, the time that I have isn't enough for God. 
the money that I'm giving is nothing compared to what God needs. Don't fall into that trap. Because like I said, God isn't, doesn't have a money shortage. He has a heart shortage of men and women that are devoted to him completely. And I encourage you to start with your kids. Start from the moment that they can hold a coin and start them giving as a way to show them how to be devoted to God through the, the worship of giving. Show them that it's the heart and the attitude in which you give that's more important than whether it's a penny, a dime, or a nickel, or a quarter. Small gifts can do great things in God's hands if our heart is right. So Jesus commends a heart of complete devotion. The second thing Jesus commends there is sacrificial giving. He commends sacrificial giving. She put in, it says, everything she had. Think about that. Everything she had. This fraction of a penny or half a penny, probably what she made through some meager work that day and all she made, and it's all she had, she put in and gave to God. Maybe enough for one little handful of, of, of grain to be able to create a little loaf of bread to eat. But she gave sacrificially and Jesus compares her to the rich who are just giving out of their abundance. And he's saying, those guys that were just giving out of what they had left over, that wasn't sacrifice. That wasn't giving. That was a little contribution. Even though it was a greater amount, it was a little contribution. What she gave was sacrifice. And we see that God isn't measuring our giving by what we give. He's measuring it by what we keep. Think about that. God doesn't measure our giving and the value of our giving by by the quantity we give. He's measuring it by what we keep for ourselves. Why? Because it's about a heart, not about money. I challenge you to give out of your living money, not your surplus. To not only give in abundance, to not only give when it's convenient. God doesn't want our leftovers. Our leftovers of time, our leftovers of energy, our leftovers of money. He wants us. All of us. And it's radical. It's radical when he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. It's radical when he says, this woman gave everything and I commend her for that. But we live in an age where God desires radical Christians. Christians that will give both pennies. C.S. Lewis said, I'm afraid biblical charity is more than merely giving away that which we could afford to do without anyway. God measures by what we give. or Not by what we give, but by what we keep for ourselves. Because that reveals the heart. Third thing that Jesus commends there is Jesus commends true generosity. She put in more than all those, it says. But really the significance here is she had two coins. Really? She put both in? Really? Why not just put one? An extra quarter of a penny is not going to make that big of a deal. At least maybe then you could save some tomorrow and have something to eat. But Jesus said she gave both. She put both in when she didn't have to. And it was out of a generous, grateful heart. 
And again, generosity has nothing to do with quantity. It has to do with sacrifice. It has to do with heart. And God wants us to give sacrificially and generously out of a heart that's devoted to Him. Finally, the fourth thing that we see that Jesus commends, and it's what He's looking for as us, is Jesus is looking for radical trust. Radical trust. Did you see the phrase that described what she gave? She gave all that she had to live on. All that she had to live on. Not knowing when the next meal would come. Not knowing how she would be provided. That is trust. That says, I am devoted to God beyond what I think I need. Beyond how I'm going to provide for myself. Beyond convenience or safety. One missionary in Africa was, was there and got a knock on his door and a little boy came with a fish. And I think I've told this before, but it's just so, so helpful. A little boy gave him a fish, large fish. The missionary said, oh, you gave me a fish. What's this for? He goes, well, you, you've been teaching us through the Bible and showing us how we're to give a tenth of all we, we have to, to God. And so I'm giving a tenth, I'm giving a fish to God. The missionary says, well, where's the other nine fish? And the boy said, well, I haven't caught them yet. I'm going to go back down and catch those, but God needs the first. That's trust. That's trust. And trust is tested over and over. When God puts on our hearts something to give or a way to give or a way to help, and we look at our bills and we're like, I don't know if I can do that. Faith promise for missions. I know many of you are stepping out in trust and saying, I have promised this. I'm going to give it, and I don't know how God is going to provide it. And even this year, I still hear stories of how God is providing. I also hear, hear stories of how people have just had to sacrifice. And so it's not a magic genie that says, woohoo, I give like this, and God gives something, because that's not the heart. But radical trust that says, if I obey God, if I give Him all my time, If I give him all of myself, he will provide. So we see four different things. Four different things that Jesus is commending a heart of devotion. He's commending sacrificial giving. He's commending true generosity. He's commending and looking for radical trust. And if we come to how we deal with our money with these things in mind, It will change how we approach even the topic of money. Because now it's an act of worship to give to God. It's seeking God to say, God, how much do you want me to give? Because it's all yours anyway. I have no right to it. I've given myself wholly to you, so take what you want. Now, this doesn't mean that we don't eat and that we don't pay a mortgage. We already have render under Caesar's what is Caesar's. But the the authority over that is render under God what is God's. And coming to Him, how you put this into practice is to come to Him and say, God, You show me, You put on my heart what I need to give. Rather than letting our budget decide that. And see what He does. It's a different way of looking at things. It's a hard way. It's a scary way of dealing with things. 
But when we keep our promises to God, He honors and is glorified by that heart of devotion. Scribe, widow. Most important in society, least important in society. Grasping everything for self, giving all that she could to God. What will we do? It's two pennies. Will you be a two-penny Christian that says my whole self is to God? It's His. I challenge you to rethink why we give, not how much we give. Let's pray. Lord God, may we give ourselves wholly and completely to You. May we live in a way that we are so sold out to You that we're willing to make radical sacrifices for Your kingdom with our time, with our resources, with our energy. Lord, may we not give in to pride. May we not give in to protecting ourselves, defending ourselves, holding on to self. But may we truly see that everything we have is Yours. We as Your people Proclaim this day that we want to love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Lord, take us. We are yours. In Jesus' name.